In Jesus' name, amen. In 2013, Dove, uh, uh, the company that makes shampoo and soap, they, they uh, did a series involving an FBI-trained sketch artist. And essentially what they did was they had, they had um, a woman who the sketch artist couldn't see describe what she looked like to the sketch artist, and the sketch artist drew it. Then they had a stranger who came along who then described what the woman looked like to the sketch artist, and then the sketch artist drew that. I'd like to give you four, four examples, four different women. This is the first one. Her name is Shelley. And the sketch on the left is the way that Shelley described herself, and on the right, the sketch is the way the stranger described her. Second one is nameless. Take a look at that. The third one, that's Kayla. Again, on the left is Kayla's description of herself. On the right is the stranger. And then finally, we have Lonnie. Lonnie gives a description of herself on the left, and then we have the stranger's description on the right. Now, when you see those two pictures compared in every case, what do you notice? Anybody notice anything there? What about the, the difference between the pictures on all of them, on, between the left and the right? On the left or on the right, which one looks better? How many would you say consistently on the left, the left picture looks better? Okay. How many of you would say on the right, the right picture looks better? Okay, we're, we're, we're more split than I thought <laughs> on this. All right, we're going to try one more time. Um, those of you who think that the, we're going to go back to the, we're going to go back to the first one, okay? Which one of you, instead of doing it individually, will just say, okay, this one characterizes all of them. Which, how, how many of you think the sketch on the left looks better? Okay. How many of you think the sketch on the right looks better? Okay. Overwhelming majority. Well, you guys agree with, with what Dove said, <laughs> the second group, that the, the pictures on the right were consistently better than the pictures on the left. And certainly one of the reasons why that is the case is because the one on the left, the people describe themselves. And when we think about the way that we describe ourselves, sometimes we see flaws in ourselves that others don't see. And so the perfect stranger didn't notice some of the things that that the person thought about themselves when they thought about their image. Well, this is one, this is one perspective on, on how we live in a fallen world. And as people who live in a fallen world, we are very aware of our fallen condition. We're aware of our flaws. We're aware of how life doesn't always go the way that we plan it to go. Life doesn't always go the way that we want it to go. And the Apostle Paul, in this section speaks hope into that reality as we remember that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything changes. Everything changes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One day, we and the rest of all creation is going to be transformed. Everything is going to be transformed. And so we ask the question, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ teach us? Number one, it teaches us that there is a better life ahead for us. There is a better life ahead for us. Now, 
one of the things I don't want you to ever hear from, from us in this congregation is the idea that you will hear in some places that when you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. Uh, the fact is, is that probably a lot of you in your experiences when you came to know the Lord, maybe your life got harder in one way or another. Maybe it strained family relationships. Maybe, it, uh, maybe, maybe when you were at work, things had to change at work. Or maybe in your personal life and different relationships had to change as a result of your relationship with Christ. Maybe it meant that God allowed you to go through certain struggles that, that maybe you wouldn't have gone through if you didn't have a relationship with him. The reality is, is that when we come to Christ, it doesn't make our lives easier. But I will say to you, and I believe that, that uh, any Christian you will ask who really knows the Lord, that when you come to know Christ, it doesn't make your life easier. But there is nothing better than to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It isn't easier, but it's better. It isn't easier, but it's better. And so, and so um, we, we, are, we are well aware of this. USA Today uh, a few years ago did a poll, and they asked people what the major causes of stress was in their life. And number one on the list was work. 36% of the people thought work was their major stressor. 22% thought money. Children made up 10%. Health, 7%. Marriage, 5%. Parents, 5%. And then 5% were just flat out lying. They said they didn't have any stress. Now, I'm sure that there are a few of us like that, but, but, but most of us, when we're going through most uh, different periods of our life, we experience stress and we, we go through difficulties. Well, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 18. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, when sometimes we think about the Apostle Paul, maybe some here might think about him as a little bit Pollyannish. I mean, um, uh, really, uh, the, the sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the glories to come. I mean, Paul, have you really, have you really suffered? Well, Paul gives a little testimony of how he suffered in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting with verse uh, 24, I, we don't have 24 up there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that. Five times, he said, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times. Can you imagine that? Think about that for a second. And during that, being lashed five times, and every time you were lashed, you were lashed 39 times. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me, of my anxiety for the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Talk about somebody who suffered. It was the Apostle Paul. But rather than allowing all of those things that he endured to make him despair, they caused him to look forward to something that was better. Um, 30 years ago, it's hard for me 
to believe that it was this long ago, and it dates me. But 30 years ago, I was stationed in Germany. And, and being stationed in Germany, that was great. That was great duty. But I was a Chicago kid who, who loved Chicago pizza. And you can tell. You can tell I love Chicago pizza. So, and um, I've heard that German pizza is better now. But, but back then, it wasn't a lot to write home about. So you have this kid who loves Chicago-style pizza who goes off to Germany. And every time I would sit down and have that pizza that I could barely get through, it would make me think of home. It would make me think of home. And that's, that's really when, when Paul thinks about the, the struggles and the anxieties and the troubles that he has, it sets his mind on a different place. It set his mind on, on being in the presence of God experiencing him. Second thing we notice is a better life. Not I mean, first of all, better life. Secondly, a better creation, a better creation. We have verses 19 through 21. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, uh, he uses a very interesting device here. It's called personification. And um, he personifies creation. And creation is personified a lot in the Bible. And in fact, a lot of you know Isaiah 55, 12. If you, if you do know, I want you to help me out with that in a second, okay? Where Isaiah 55, 12 says... And the trees of the field, they, right? You know that, right? They clap their hands. That's personification. And we notice that in the scriptures. And he personifies, he personifies creation here. He says that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He pictures creation itself with this desire for, for a, a new day. And the reason for this is because there is a better creation that is ahead that God has in store for us. And so he tells us in verse 20 that this present creation has been subjected to futility. This word could be translated vanity, meaninglessness. Um, it's the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes 1-2 to when, when, the, when the preacher says vanity, all is vanity. It's the same, it's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And, and so the, the creation itself is longing for a better day because it's been subjected to futility. Many um, secular and Christian philosophers agree now, all Christian philosophers agree with this, but many secular ones agree. Many atheists, particularly philosophers, agree with this. Some of them are existentialists and some are determinists. But they will all agree that if there is no God, then there really is no meaning in life. If there is no God, there is no meaning in life. I mean, think about it for, for a moment. You know, if there is no God, it really doesn't matter if we're nice to our neighbor or not. You know why? Because if there is no God and there is no heaven and there is no hell, one day we are going to die and we're not going to remember whether we were nice to our neighbor. And our neighbor is going to die and they're not going to remember whether we were nice to them either. 
And that's why someone with a worldview like Adolf Hitler could carry out the atrocities that he did, or Joseph Stalin could carry out the atrocities that he did. Joseph, Joseph Stalin said, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. We, we, live, in a, we live in a world where, um, where if there is no God, and th- then there is no meaning, and it really doesn't matter what we do. And, and we have seen people embrace that ethic, and that's why the world in which we live is spinning out of control. And so there's futility in the world. But there's, but there's also... There's also futility in the world because the world isn't fulfilling the purpose that God made it for. Remember um, when God created Adam and Eve, he he told them to, to, um, to multiply, to have dominion over the earth, to subdue the earth and and bring it under the 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 glorious rule of God. And then it seems it's right out of the chute, right? Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They turned their backs on him. And this mission that God had them on to transform the creation uh, came to a quick and sudden end. In fact, God's, God's vision for the creation then is the same vision that God still has for the creation. We read in Habakkuk 2.14, it says this, one of my favorite verses for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That, is, that was God's intention when he created us. And that is still God's intention for the world. That the world will be transformed. But now it is subject to futility. It's characterized as in bondage to corruption. Think about all these ecological disasters that we hear uh, around us, whether they be tornadoes, hurricanes, nor'easters, earthquakes. We have people in every generation who worry about impending ecological disaster that's going to overtake the planet. In fact, this is nothing new. The, 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 the fear that we have today that we're going to have some ecological disaster, uh, I have read that, that even the ancient Greeks believed that something of that nature was going to overcome the world. There has been a sense among people universally that there is something wrong in the creation. There is something wrong in the creation, and it's something called sin. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, and they're turning their back on the Lord, what ended up happening was there was a separation between Adam, Eve, and God, and as a result, they didn't fulfill the purpose that God had for them in the world, and therefore the world is subject to futility, and the world groans. The the creation groans for a day when it will be released from its bondage. Scriptures tell us that Jesus is the one who will do that. In Ephesians 1.10, it says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Do you see that? So when God created the world, he created, he created the world in such a way that heaven and earth were merged. In Adam's sin, heaven and earth was then separated. But God has a plan. He has a rescue operation in place. And if you read Revelation 21 and 22, you will see this so clearly. Heaven and earth will one day meet, be merged again. And we will live with God in a physical earthly world that will be transformed. And that is part of the resurrection. That is part of the resurrection. Jesus transforms the whole creation. That is God's plan. And so we read at the end of verse 20 and then 21, in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Or as the New Living Translation translates it, the, the glorious freedom from death and decay. That, that's what God has in store. He compares it in verse 22 to the pains of childbirth, to the pains of childbirth. Now, um, I'm no expert on childbirth. <laughs> My wife has had six of them, but uh, I can't say that I have ever experienced it. But one thing I can tell is that it is a very painful process. I'm sure you ladies agree, right? None of us men can relate to it, and all of us men know that if it was up to men to have children, the human race would have been extinct a long time ago. So we, we are so thankful for you ladies. If it wasn't for you, uh, the Lord knew. He, he knew that he would give you that task. But for those, for those of you who have experienced that, you know how painful it is. And given how painful it is, how could it be that somebody would want to go through it multiple times? The pain of childbirth. Well, the reason is simple. Because you know that there's something awaiting you on the other side that's far greater than anything that you're going through. And, and he describes the creation like that, all the travails of creation, all of the, 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 the groaning of creation. It, it, it's one day going to lead to its full culmination when, when, uh, when there will be a new transformed creation in which God will dwell with his people well, number three, number three. Uh, so not only will there be a, a better life and a better creation, but there will be a better us. There will be a better us. It, it isn't just the creation that will be transformed, he says in verse 23, but we ourselves, believers, will be transformed. Let's read the whole section there, starting in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, um, now, now, why can we be confident that there is something more for us waiting, that there, is a, that there is a new body waiting for us? He says, well, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, when we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, when we are born again, what God does is he places his Holy Spirit in us. And we are changed. We are changed from the inside out. You know it. If you've experienced it, you know it. People every week tell me, I am not the person I used to be. God has done something so extraordinary in me, uh, I don't even recognize who, who I once was. Is that you? When you think about your life before Christ and now your life in Christ, don't you, don't you see that there's this extraordinary change that's taken place in your heart where you are no longer what you used to be? Well, that's, you, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit is a deposit, the first fruits of the new creation. You have been transformed inwardly, but one day you will be, your, your whole body will be transformed. God didn't make us as, as kind of like the, the, for, for our spirit to be separated from our body, but, but he made us as one unit, uh, uh, spirit and body. Paul describes our present condition like this in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. Well, the question is, is what will our resurrected bodies be like? What will they be like? Well, Luke chapter 24, 38 through 40, it tells us. We, we know what our bodies will be like based on what the body of Jesus was like when he rose from the dead. And, and, on, and uh, he went to see his disciples after his resurrection. And notice what happened in Luke 24, 38 through 40. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And so just as Jesus has a transformed physical body, so we will have a transformed physical body. And those of you who are starting to get more and more advanced in age, aren't you so grateful for that? The body, the body that we have isn't the body. It's going to be the same body, but it's going to be a different body. It's the same body, but it's a transformed body. It's a new body. There'll be no more aches and pains. There'll be no more diseases. There'll be no more uh, of the afflictions that we deal with, but they will be bodies that will be made to be perfect. Bodies that we will live in forever. Somehow made of the same stuff of this body, but, but somehow also transformed. And when will we experience this? Well, when the Lord returns. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. It says this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven in a, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Isn't that great news? Great news? Think about, think about what that will be. Just, just if we could use our sanctified imagination just for a second. We spend so much time thinking about this present life that we spend so little thinking about the life that God has in store for us that we miss out on the treasure, that we miss out on the the joy that Paul had, even in the midst of his sufferings, what motivated him through those sufferings to know that one day he'll be in the presence of the Lord. Think about it just for a second. Think about how one day, it tells us in Revelation 21, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. What will that be like to have Jesus wipe away tears from our eyes? And then we look down and we see the nail-pierced hands as he does it. Sometimes when we think about heaven, we think about it as Jesus will be somewhere over there and I'll be in the back. Do you ever think like that? Sometimes that goes through my mind. But no, we have this picture, this intimate picture where Jesus will be near to us. He will wipe, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And then, and then there will be a whole multitude there from every tribe and nation, billions and billions of people. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God sings over his people. Then when we are there in the presence of God, I just can't even imagine it. I cannot, I can't even imagine it. I want to imagine it. But one day, we're going to hear God sing. It's, it's, a, it's a glorious thing to sing together, isn't it? And I love to hear your voices. But there is no voice more pure, more perfect than the voice of the living God, the one who created voices. 
What will that be like to hear him singing over his children, his beloved ones that he, he gave his life for? You can imagine him singing and as the sound goes out and reverberates throughout the, throughout the world and, and uh, touches the far off worlds into space as he sings and as we hear this, this perfect voice and then perhaps the, the singing will, will come to an end and then all of a sudden, think about what heaven will be like. I love heaven. I love how God draws all people together, that God loves all people, that God is the one who created every tribe, every people, every tongue in the world. Think about that just for, for a second. And then all of a sudden in heaven, we have saints from all the ages, from uh, thousands of years ago past, uh, saints now in the present all over the course of time, and then we, we see in one place in that, that great assembly when we're meeting there together, and then all of a sudden, maybe a group of Ethiopians begin to sing over here. And then over there, all of a sudden, a, a whole chorus of Filipinos begin to join in. And then on the other side, some Russians begin to sing, and then some Brazilians begin to sing. And then some, some Germans begin to sing, and, and maybe some of us from America, well, we're all going to be singing, right? And all of heaven will erupt in song before the, before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and, and, and every voice will be joined together in one chorus, and we will be living on this transformed earth in a globe. Sometimes we think about heaven, we think about floating around in the, the clouds, and we, we think about uh, maybe we'll have wings on, and, and we'll be playing harps, and you know, we, we shouldn't get our theology about heaven for movies. Hey, that's why people think heaven's boring. But actually, if, if you read very quickly the scripture, the story, it starts in a garden, a physical garden. God made us physical people. We live on a physical planet. And in the new, and in the new Jerusalem, we will be living on a physical planet. We will, I believe, we'll be living on this planet. This planet will be transformed. And, and heaven and earth that was once separated, they will be joined together and God will be with his people. And there we were, we will be, uh, we will be together and we will have a hard ground under our feet and we will have the Lord in our midst and we will sing to him with all of our heart and our heart will fall out of our chest as we are now in the presence of the living God who made all of this possible. And then in that moment, we will realize that we were made for, for that place and we will remember that we were made for that one. And for all eternity, we will know that we were made for that place and that one. And the Bible says that nothing unclean will be able to be in that place. Nothing unclean will be able to be there. Remember when, when Adam was in the garden and, and it was his job it was his job to run the garden, to lead the garden. He was like a priest in the garden. And then he allowed the unclean thing into the garden and it, and it, and it wrecked everything. Well, well, God is the one who will keep watch over this, over this new garden city. And nothing unclean will enter there. And so you look at your own life and your own heart and you say, yes, I was made for that place. I was made for that person. He is my treasure. But, but I know that I'm unclean. Well, that's the whole point of why Jesus came. Jesus came to die on a cross to save us from our sin. Jesus Christ went to the cross and he took upon himself our sin and he died in our place so that through faith in him we can live and through faith in him he washes away our sin. He makes us clean. He transforms us. There's nothing we can do, not a single thing that we can do to make ourselves clean. But Jesus has done everything that is necessary. And so God calls us to come to him in faith and when we come to him in faith, he transforms us. He makes us new and we will be part of that new creation. And we will spend forever and ever and ever with him.
And if we're going to spend forever and ever and ever with him like that, shouldn't we go ahead and live right now for him completely, always, with all of our heart? That's what we were made for. And that's what God wants every person here to experience. I hope you know that Savior. I hope you're going to be in that place and worship that one and experience sights and sounds that we cannot imagine in this old fallen world. Let's pray. Oh, Father.